Hello, everyone. It is then again at the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am Glenn, and today I am fortunate enough to have one of my very best friends across the table from me, Mr. Preston Burt, who is an expert in a great many things, even though he will tell you he is not. And today we're going to go back into the not-too-distant past, depending upon when you were born, and talk about the history of something that is near and dear to Preston's heart, the history of pinball games. Hello, Preston. Hello, Glenn. So good to see you. <laughs> Glad to be here. And I will argue that we're not really really going back into history since this is still around. Some people may not realize it, but pinball is actually still around, never really went anywhere. But you're right, I do still come across some kids who have never even seen a pinball game before. How do they try to operate it? Do they just go up and start pushing a button? Uh, repeatedly, no idea how the flippers work. That's the most common thing. You have to teach them that there are <laughs> buttons on the side that control the ball. So let's define our terms and start from the okay. beginning. Tell us about when pinball games, as we think of them as pinball games, first started. All right, so I'll attempt to keep this concise, sure. but knowing this is a history podcast, I thought I'd give you a little history, and it all centers around the term pinball. So when people think of the word pinball right now, they think of typical arcade machine with the flippers and the large table with the pop bumpers and things, but that's not what a pinball originally was, and the reason it was called pinball was because of little nails or pins that they implanted on wood around holes to try to, to to go in there. And that's from the term when they were originally bagatelle machines. This is back in the time of Louis the 14th in France. So we're, we're going back some deep history. Sacre bleu. The late 1600s to early 1700s. And then in the mid 1750s to 1770s, that's when they introduced a spring with a plunger. Now that is definitely typical pinball. Pull that plunger back and let her rip. And that was one of the original incantations. But the kind that we're talking about really didn't happen until mid 20th century. So there were some iterations before then. First application of having coin-operated mechanisms for these bagatelle machines. But really, in 1947, that was when it changed the game. Because not only did we have electronic bumpers, but we had flippers. So it wasn't until we got flippers that we really can think about the pinball machines that we know and love today. So that goes back a while. But the pinball games that we think about today, they took off pretty quickly, right? We started slow, you say 1947. But then within what, a decade and a half, there were multiple companies building multiple pinball games, and they were filling up all those places around town you're not supposed to go, like bowling alleys right. and pool rooms. Well, the controversy started even earlier. So back when they first became coin-operated, there were up to around 200 companies at the beginning trying to make these pinball machines. The case of the May the Best Man Win came into play, and so it dwindled down to some of the big players, Williams and Gottlieb and so forth. One of the big historical points in in history is a famous picture of Mayor Fiero LaGuardia in New York bashing these pinball machines with sledgehammers that they've confiscated because they are gambling devices. And that's hard to think of today, but back then they really were because that picture in the 40s was really before the popularity of those flippers. And so you pulled back a plunger, let the ball fly, and where it landed was whether or not you got some money, a free game, and it really was kind of gambling. But that that black mark kind of stuck with the games for a long time. And so, you know, they were for ne'er-do-wells and back out like you say, but the 70s, that was that was kind of when the game changed. So there were a lot of pinball machines for sure, but the 70s was really when it was popularized and there were dozens of machines every year. Williams and Gottlieb were the primary players. We can talk about some of that in a little bit, but I'll give you the mic back. 
Okay, so, so you you keep the mic as long as you want. Well, you know, I it's, I, I want to be a good guest, and <laughs> you know, I'm used to hosting my podcast, so I, right. I, I well, try not. Now to. it's my turn to make you talk. Oh, good. Williams and Gottlieb are making the machines. They're flippers now, and having the flippers means that it was able to, at least from a legal perspective, turn into something that was gambly into something that was proven to be based on skill. Tell us a little bit about that great story about the man who saved pinball. That's right. So we go back to the state of New York. Mayor LaGuardia is long gone, but the stigma of pinball remains. That changes with, as you say, the man who saved pinball. His name is Roger Sharp. Um, he was a writer for for magazines, I think Esquire, um, but he was also a really, really good pinball player. And so knowing that the state of the industry was kind of on the line, the an amusement organization had him come testify in front of the New York City Council. And basically he pulled a Babe Ruth. He said, I know you think these are games for gambling and, and, and so forth, but it's a game of skill. If you watch me, I can control where I want the ball to go. And he um, basically said, all right, on this next on this next turn, I'm gonna make the ball go in that hole. So not quite the symbol of, of Babe Ruth holding his bat aloft out into the outfield, but similarly calling his shot, make the shot, and proving that it was a game of skill. And that pretty much lifted the stigma and allowed for the city to start getting some revenue from, <laughs> from right. taxing those machines. Right. Well, yeah, if they realize that it's remotely legal, then they can make money from it. Suddenly it becomes something not only allowed, but perhaps encouraged. That's right. But you'll still be surprised that there are remnants of laws on the books in some backwoods cities that pinball is still outlawed. And people I know who have tried their hardest to get uh, an arcade open back up or as um, is popular now in a lot of cities, uh, a pinball bar or an arcade bar, um, they're still finding some pushback from these from these laws way back when that are still on the books. That's, that's so fast. And Atlanta had one too, right? That's right. The convention that I run, the Southern Fried Gaming Expo, on our very first year, it was kind of kismet that we were the day of our first event was a 75th anniversary of them banning pinball or outlawing pinball in the city of Atlanta for the same purposes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty fun to find. So the 70s was the peak. There were there were pinball games everywhere. I around. don't know that it was the peak. Okay. But that so, was the game changer. That was okay? the game changer. That was the game changer. The peak was actually in the 90s. So walking you a little bit more through the history, the 70s not only lifted that, that black mark of gambling and so forth, but it also, due to technology, not only expanded the pinball, but really, really helped help set it forth on a path of novelty and creativity and taking things to the next level. So those games that we've been talking about up until now, they were all electromechanical. They're what you... Uh, now defi yeah, define the yeah, term. Right. So yeah. what you think of electromechanical is, yes, it uses electricity to, to fire coils, but this specific type of machines are the ones where the score box in the head unit uses score reels, where it chick chink, chick chink, chick chink moves one little bit at a time. It's the one that you kind of identify the sounds with because it has actual like bells and chimes. But then in the in the late 1970s, we switched to solid state electronics. So there are some games that were released that are actually, you can find both versions. There's a, a game called Fireball. I hope I'm not misspeaking, but there's a game called Fireball. It's a very classic Valley machine and it was manufactured with those score reels, but then converted. So some of them are now electronic with the digital scoring in the back box. So digital scoring, microprocessors, able to add speech and electronic sounds and not just bells. It was kind of like the sky's the limit. And so that's when you shift it, you know, the shift from electromechanical to solid state brought about a huge number of innovations and uh, just a fervor for the machines. That's when we're talking about the iconic machines like KISS, Valley's 
big push with tons of their machines, eight ball, those type of things in the 70s. And then with video games pairing, the arcades just boom. But to your to to your point, the actual uh, highest point in pinball history was in the 90s, the dot matrix display era, the DMD era. And that's when we get the highest selling pinball machine of all time. Do you know what it is, sir? Take a guess. Bride of Pinbot? Uh, the, that's a good guess. That's a very popular game. But actually, original themes don't sell as well as movie tie-ins. Oh, so it must be movie tie-in. Yes. Gosh, in the 1990s. 90s. Yes, early 90s. I don't know. Adam's Family. Oh. Based on the Raul, <laughs> and, and Raul Julia Angelica Houston movie. That sold over 20,000 units, um, which may not sound like a lot as compared to arcade machines where Pac-Mans were selling at 400,000 units at the time, you know, back in the early 80s. But for pinball, a single title selling more than 20,000 units is huge. Well, and let's establish too that pinball machines, even solid state, are far more complex critters than an arcade box. Yes, right? that's right. So rather than just having one display a wooden cabinet and one circuit board with a few wires. This has over a mile of wires. It's got complex mechanisms that are mechanically inclined. They've got coils. They've got those computer boards as well, digital displays. Yeah, it's really involved. And so the price point for purchasing them is a lot more than just an arcade machine. And consequently, the level of effort needed to maintain those machines is a lot uh, is a lot more than arcade machines as well. You're talking about Adam's family. It seems like the one of the big pushes that made the 90s work are these tie-ins with music and movies and television. Right. Right. And that way you're able to combine the perfect storm for pop culture and to make those pinballs work. So if that's the peak and pinball really started in, say, 1947, you get to the 90s, it seems like the slide was pretty quick. It was. And I really don't understand. I mean, they're, they're, they made a whole movie about the fall of pinball, but I really can't put my finger on it other than to think that it's just generally to the decline of the arcade, wherein the home console units were able to outpower the arcade units. You know, when the home console units first came around, you had Atari, even the early NES. Those graphics, those things, they were much less than what you could have in the arcade because mm -hmm. they were using the state-of-the-art microprocessors and everything, and you were getting the home version that was watered down. But at a time in the late 90s where you have PlayStation 2 coming out, and it's DVD-capable, has the highest graphics resolution you've ever seen, very involved stories, bang for your buck, um, people just weren't going to the arcades anymore. And I think that was ultimately the cause of the fall of not just the arcades, but pinball in general. So, yeah, and, and the major manufacturers that you're talking about. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're all gone except for one, right? Isn't there only one company still That's making right. new pinballs? You're correct. So the big players of the day back in the, you know, the quote glory days of pinball, Gottlieb, Williams, those are those were long gone. And the only one that stuck around actually has had changed names a few times. But so just to give you a little bit of this company's history, Stern Pinball is still around. Stern actually got their start in video games. They they made the classic arcade game Berserk um, and and others from the early 80s. But eventually, I mean, legally not tied to the same name, right? Because they started up as, as Data East Pinball. But then they, they changed their name to Sega Pinball. And then they changed their name to Stern Pinball. And that, that but it's the same entity. So they've been around producing pinballs since the mid 80s. I think their first one was Laser War in 1986. But they were the only ones that stuck around from 2000s, which was the death of Williams, which is the other last remaining manufacturer. And they just put out, you know, two, three games per year, kind of laid low for a while, low runs. But then I guess the nostalgia factor and the demand 
just picked up slowly and surely and then they had some private investment and they were able to ratchet up and I'd say over a 10 year period between the slow period which was like 2001 to 2011 but then they picked it up and it has been gangbusters ever since. Well they've following that merchandising tie in with popular movies and things like that. When I've gone and seen them, see them with you they're always on top of the pop culture. Their latest one was The Mandalorian. Right? That's right. <laughs> well actually their latest one so that's that was their previous latest one. They right. just announced a few days ago that their newest one is also a tie-in but for a more classic property for Godzilla the old Toho oh. cheesy monster movie they're ones. gonna sell a thousand oh my gosh yes and to, to help sell them they also introduce tiered approach to purchasing you mm -hmm. can have a pro model for the basic operator or home enthusiast a premium edition with a lot more bells and whistles and then you can have a, a limited edition with all the trimmings so yeah each of these has a lot of things to offer not only the theme but the innovation and toys and collectability right so so that's the brief history of pinballs you got it way back Back until the present day, but tell us more about why Preston likes pinballs and when Preston started to get into it. Well, I really wasn't a pinball guy because I was so frugal in my childhood that I I didn't even take my quarters to try the newest, best game. Like, I wouldn't go try the Dragon's Lair and waste my 50 cents. I'd take my quarter on the machine that I knew I could play the longest on, like Galaga, or I later... Did, I did the same thing. <laughs> later, Bad Dudes. Because when your parents only give you a handful of quarters or one or two, you want it to last the longest, right? Um, and pinball, they always cost more. They always cost 50 cents or 75 or a dollar growing, growing up. So I played some... My earliest memory was probably playing a Terminator 2 pinball machine in the early 90s in the back of my corner store arcade. But for me, it was when I became an arcade collector and started getting into the home collecting in, in mid-2000s and realizing just the playability was so much longer on a pinball machine. There was a replay factor where every game is different. You know, if you start off playing Galaga, like I mentioned, you're going to start off on level one, stage one, every single time. And it's going to follow this script every single time. Yes, you can improve. There's some variability, but ultimately, at least the same thing. And so for me, being able to have every ball is wild, every game is different, um, you're challenging yourself every time, that replay factor was just too much for me to pass up. And I bought my first machine um, in 2011. Uh, it was a Tron Legacy pinball machine. That's the first pinball you ever got? That's the first pinball I ever owned, ever yes. Ever owned, okay. And how many do you have now? I only have five machines now. Only? Yeah, only. Only. Uh, and the rest are, I have like 12 arcade machines in my basement, but yeah. It's, it's good to be Preston's friend, <laughs> folks, let me tell you. It is. It runs, it rubs off on Glenn because now he has a pinball machine too. Star Trek. <laughs> the original series, by the way, not any of this That's new right. junk. That's right. So tell us, and this is going to, I'm going to have Preston back again too, because really what this is, is a sort of nostalgia that pops up when you start thinking about the older pinball games, the older arcades, and even the newer stuff. There's a certain aspect of, of nostalgia, of, of retro wantingness of these things, wanting to play it and wanting to take it back. So, so we're going to have Preston back, but before we end this one, I want to ask Preston one last question. Question. What's your favorite pinball game ever? Oh, that is a tough one. That is really tough. So many have come and gone through my collection because I have limited space. Whew, yeah, so I'll give you two. Judges? <laughs> we'll allow it. <laughs> I'll give you two. One is Terminator 2. It was supposed to be the very first dot matrix display game. So it was kind of pivotal in the history, but something in the scheduling meant it was actually the second. Gilligan's Island was the first. But this was Steve, uh, Steve Ritchie. They tied Ritchie. into everything, folks. This was designed by Steve Ritchie, who's considered the 
the Master of Flow, and it's a tie-in machine with Arnold Schwarzenegger speaking. You can shoot a trigger gun to fire a cannon. Uh, it's got ramp that just one after the other. It's like quintessential of the essence, and it sold a ton. It wasn't the highest selling, but it sold a ton. And then me, personally, I have a game that came out when I was born. I didn't ever play it until I was a collector, but it came out in 1980. It's called Flash Gordon. It's one of this of the Bally Renaissance, an early solid state machine. It's based off of the movie, two level play field action, and it looks simple, challenging as all get out. It has the just one more play aspect. Every time you drain, you're like, just one more play. <laughs> I just got to try one more time. And it's never leaving my collection. Yeah, never. Nope. Never. Very cool. Well, Preston, thanks so much for joining us and taking us down that trip to pinball. And uh, you tricked me. I thought we were only going to go back to like the maybe the 60s, but you took me back to Louis the 14th. So I prepare for my friend. Good, good call. <laughs> good call on that. That is all the time we have. But we hope you tune in again. Like I said, we're going to have Preston back and take another trip down history slash memory lane next week. So until we see you again, stay safe, take care, and thanks, Preston. Thank you. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.